Welcome to another episode of the Big Picture Business Podcast. We have a very special guest with us today. We're really excited to get right to it. Today joining us is Matthew Confer. And Matthew is the Vice President of Strategy at Ability, a leadership development company based in Austin, Texas, that provides immersive business simulations to a global client base that includes over 50 members of the Fortune 500. Matt has spoken on the topic of decision-making at the TEDx conference. And I'm just going to say right now, you guys have to see this. It is called Before You Decide. And we will absolutely put a link to his TEDx in the show notes because it is so fascinating. And he hosts the Learn to Lead podcast where he speaks with authors, professors, creatives, and business leaders about their leadership journey and how they are working to develop the leaders of tomorrow. So welcome, Matthew. <laughs> We're so happy you're here with us. I am very happy to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And you just became a new dad. Is that right? I did. Actually, late last month, our little one joined us two weeks early. Super excited for, for him. He was super excited to join the world in, in 2020. So it's, a, it's been a year to say the least. Yeah. Oh, well, well, congratulations. So Matthew, tell us, how did you get started with Ability and how does one become the vice president of strategy? I started my career at Deloitte Consulting, which is an incredible place to start your career. And I, I spent almost eight years there. And I think one of the things that I felt at the end of my time there is I was always intrigued about what it might be like to work at a slightly smaller company. One of the things that you Learn at Deloitte is it's incredible, but it's also an engine that works because there are thousands of people that are that are making that engine work. And I think part of what I wanted was maybe to be a little bit more of a driver of a small car where you get to impact things a little bit more directly. And one of the last things that I had done at Deloitte was I helped to design what was our new hire onboarding training. And in some ways, I kind of fell in love with what it meant to actually decide how somebody gets onboarded or what sort of skills you need to succeed in a role. And a long story short, I moved to Austin about six years ago, still with Deloitte, took a fortuitous path that via a LinkedIn connection landed me a conversation with the CEO of Ability. And we do leadership training via simulations. And we're a small company with a big global footprint. And they were looking for a director of sales and strategy, and the fit was perfect. And I've been here for almost three years, and it's been three of the most rewarding years of my professional career to date. Now that you're in this role, what is it that you specifically focus on, and how do you help people? Yeah, so I think a lot of people are familiar with, with corporate training. We've maybe all been to different corporate trainings, whether they be different skill sets that your organization is looking to get or high potential programs. Maybe you've been promoted to a new role and you're going to go through a cohort-based learning system. Our offering is in some ways gamifying the approach to manager and leadership skills. So we actually have team-based, computer-based simulations. So one of them is focused on people management skills. One of them is focused on financial acumen skills. One of them is focused on decision-making skills. And our goal is how do we kind of involve you in the learning? So a much more active approach to leadership training rather than maybe more of a traditional passive approach to leadership training. So rather than clicking through an, an online training or listening to somebody present from PowerPoint slides, 
you're actually in an immersive simulation where you and your team are making decisions. You're having structured debriefs. You're actually competing and collaborating with the hope that we're creating this environment for real-world practice in a simulated environment without, obviously, real-world consequences. Fascinating. I love this kind of stuff. (laughs) It really is. I want to do one of the simulations. It sounds fantastic. I could totally see how when you said that your current role is really rewarding, just the way in which you're speaking right now, I can tell you're like, yes, this is this is purpose right now. This is good. What are what are some of the results that that people have gotten out of going through that program? Now, one of the things that we love about our, our clients is they think pretty creatively about how to integrate our, our program. So if you're a new manager at Coca-Cola, for example, which is one of our clients, you may be in a six-month cohorted program with people from all around your region or all around the globe. And many of our clients utilize us in different ways. But one of my favorite is utilizing a simulation as the capstone event to a leadership program. So maybe you and 20 of your colleagues have been through a six-month program where you're meeting with executives, you're going through different training modules, maybe you're doing an action learning project, and our simulation might be the end of that experience. So you and your colleagues are competing with others in your cohort to build a business from the ground up. That's one of our simulations. And you're dealing with these external events, and you're dealing with conditions of ambiguity, and you're making decisions as a leadership team of this brand new fictitious company. And then we're coming together and we're talking about how did your team actually structure your decision-making frameworks? How did you decide who would take the responsibility when there wasn't a clear decision? And how does that reflect what's happened over the six months of your leadership journey? So we're constantly trying to figure out ways to tie back to what else is going on in your real world and with people at your certain level. And it really serves as a nice structure for you as a leader to say, what have I done up until this point? What do I want to be in the future? And how can I have a sandbox environment to maybe practice and play and collaborate with my colleagues. One of the things that you talked about in, in your TEDx talk was constraints. Now, on one of our other episodes, uh, the one that featured Christopher Bright, we, what we talked about was actually adding in constraints as a way to help get projects done, right? But you have a different approach to constraints, and I really liked it. I'd never actually thought about it in the way that, that you presented it. Would you be able to explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to take everything that we've learned from watching these rising leaders and executives and new managers at organizations all around the world and kind of try to distill it into a three-step decision-making framework. And the first step is the one that you're referencing, which I call challenge the constraints. And the reason I called it that is I have the pleasure of facilitating some of our events. And what I find is You throw a problem at people, and the first thing that they want to do is they just want to solve it at all costs. And the teams and the individuals that I've seen that are the most successful in our simulations take a huge step back and first say, what are the constraints that are maybe stopping me from being able to make a real breakthrough? It'd be great to solve the problem, and I don't just want to jump right in and solve. Instead, as a team, we should dissect the problem, uncover it a little bit, and see if there's something holding us back from a major breakthrough. Getting it accomplished is great, but if you want to make major breakthroughs, your first step needs to be figuring out what the constraints are, and then maybe thinking, is it even plausible for you to challenge them and 
I hate to use the, the very overused phrase of think outside the box, but I would say that it's a powerful thing to do. And if you're going to do it, it sure makes sense for it to be your first step. Yeah, absolutely. If someone was to, um, to apply this, say, say they're a, a small business owner, for example, because I know you work with a lot of you know, high-level executives and, and large companies. If they're a small business owner, what would be some strategies that they could, could use to implement something that, that type of thinking in their own businesses, knowing that they don't necessarily have a team to go through that process with? One thing that a lot of us default to is what's worked in the past is inevitably our default going forward. So one thing that I, I like to do sometimes with intact teams is when presented with a problem that maybe you face on a quarterly or a weekly or a biannual basis, sometimes it just becomes pretty regimented to just do what you did before. And what if you took a step back at your next planning meeting and said, okay, you can't do that again. Even if it's worked before, we can't do that again. We have to do something different. And you force yourself to have the brainstorming exercise. Or maybe you look at a competitor in your space who does something diametrically opposed to how you do things. And maybe you're even more successful at it, but what if you forced yourself to say, okay, if we completely deviated from what we've done in the past, what would that look like? It doesn't mean that you have to do it. It just means that the most important thing is to have those types of conversations. And what I find is that people become pretty comfortable. A lot of the people that we work with have been relatively successful. They got to one of our trainings because they were identified as a high performer or they'd been successful and they'd climbed the ranks. One of the things that's then hard is to deviate from what got you to the point that you are. And training and brainstorming activities are really good opportunities for you to throw the script out and at least consider going in a completely different direction. It doesn't mean you have to go in that direction. It just means it's powerful to have those types of conversations. Hmm conversations. And I, and I would imagine just the ability to shift your mindset and focus on learning in a new structure and a new format. I want to dive back into your framework a little bit here. That was the backdrop for your TEDx. We discussed the first step, but there's two others, right? There's, there's two others to, to, to making this magic come together. So can you, uh, can you talk to that a little bit more? Yeah. So step number two is what I called embrace a premortem. And we're all pretty familiar with postmortems. They're pretty popular in life. They're definitely very popular in business. You wait until a project or an event is over, and then you go over with a fine-tooth comb, everything that went right, everything that went wrong, and you do this elaborate post-mortem. I think it's really powerful, and I've seen teams that do this, that embrace at the onset a pre-mortem. And what I mean by that is, if you're thinking about making a decision, let's say you've challenged all the constraints, you've done all the brainstorming, and you've decided this is the path you want to go. Your next step, which most people omit, is you have to do the mental exercise of assuming that what you're thinking is going to be an unmitigated failure. You have to assume that it is going to fail miserably. And then you have to tell me or talk to your team or strategize why that would have happened. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's powerful is I walk around the room if we're in person or I move around to virtual breakout rooms when we're giving one of our simulations in our virtual classroom. And teams can tell me 17 ways that their strategy is going to be successful. And I have to press them for them to tell me the one or two ways that it will fail. And I think it's just a mental block that if we're strategizing with a team, we want to come up with all of the ways that we're going to be successful. 
if you want to be a successful decision maker, first force yourself to say, if I fail, here's the five, 10, or even just one way I'm going to fail. And it makes your final decision stronger. And that's why it was the second step in my decision-making framework. Wow. That's so powerful. And we make thousands of decisions every single day in business, in life. So when you really start to wrap your mind around this, like the big picture thinking of this, it's just fascinating. Okay. So number three. Yeah, so number three is called check the basics. And as I've mentioned, I, I do feel very lucky that we get to work with some incredibly accomplished individuals. Sometimes I'm flabbergasted though, that you can create the most elaborate ideas. You can put together models of all of the ways that things are going to work. You, you do everything and it's the dotting of I's and the crossing of T's that that trips people up. So the third step was called check the basics because what I've seen time and time again, and I think this resonates in business and in real life, as decisions become more complex, it's sometimes the small details that trip you up. I told a story from the TEDx stage about this massive project to study the climate of the planet Mars. And it was this huge NASA mission And it ended up being an unmitigated failure. And the reason was because there were two teams working on the project and one of the teams used the metric system and the other team did all of their calculations in inches, feet, and pounds. And what astounds me about this is you have legitimate rocket scientists who forgot to check that both teams were using the same unit of measurement. That's obviously a massive example but I think it's actually emblematic of what happens in a lot of real world situations. As the decision gets more complex, the small details trip you up. So that's why it was the third and final step. Yeah, but so important. I mean, just right. like mind boggling important. It's just so crazy that, you, I mean, you would think like, you know, rocket scientists would figure out some of these simple things, but it, it just proves that anyone can make mistakes. We, you know, we've talked about that before. You know, you can like, you're going to make mistakes. Now that's, that can lead to catastrophic mistakes in, in the case of, of NASA, but in business, you're also going to make mistakes and it's how you deal with those mistakes, how you handle those mistakes and how you improve upon it. That makes the big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, I think it's scary to make decisions sometimes, especially if you're a leader and you know that you're going to be the one um, that will be judged by the final outcome. So one of the things that kind of makes me a little bit of a of a geek for decision-making frameworks and creating my own is because I think it's powerful to have something to fall back on because when things get stressful and you feel like all eyes are on you or all eyes are on your team, it, it's really great to have something to say, I put it through the ringer. I went through this. This is why I'm going in this direction. I've stress tested it and I feel more confident because I did this extra due diligence. Yeah. You've, you've gained the, the data, so to speak, right? Like you, exactly. you have that knowledge behind you. Yeah. 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 I love this. This is amazing. <laughs> Since COVID, you know, what are the largest shifts you've seen in leadership development? It's a, it's a really great question. And it's probably been the most fascinating thing that's happened to our business in the three years uh, that I've been here, which I, I don't think we're an anomaly there. Before COVID, only about 30% of the work that we did was fully virtual. And more often than not, it was because people either didn't have the budget to fly people together or 
they were looking for a one-off solution where maybe it was a global training, but they weren't going to have everybody together. And so virtual was their default. We're very thankful that for the past four years, we've been working on our virtual offerings. It ended up paying big dividends this year. To me, the most fascinating conversation that we're having strategically at our organization is what does the post-pandemic world, whenever we get there, look like? People are loving the virtual option more though because they're, they're forced into it and they still want the networking, they want the connection, they want the immersive experience. So we're benefiting from that a little bit. In a post-pandemic world, are people going to want to get back at the hotel resort or the corporate boardroom and do their training? Or are people going to say, you know, working from home actually worked a lot better and we're going to continue to train that way as well? Yeah. yeah. Like more cost-effective too, I would imagine for many, many corporations. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting. Just, I mean, who knows when that's going to happen, right? Six months, six years. Like we, we just don't know. Hopefully not six years. We just don't know. I have found that from my own company as well. I do most of my work virtually. And so not a whole lot has shifted for me. But for those who want to implement some of these very critical and important decision-making leadership development factors into their own businesses right now, what would you say is like the top three things that small business owner, even even big corporate you know, business owner right now should focus on right now because of COVID? Well, I think number one is putting your decisions or putting your strategic plans through a stress test, I think is a really powerful thing to do. You can use the framework that we laid out on the show. I can walk through another quicker one that I really like, and I'll, I'll do that in a second. The second thing that I think is really powerful is sharing with your employees why you're doing what you're doing. So I think many times we default to saying at a company all hands meeting, okay, here's our strategic priorities coming up. What I think is the next level that most leaders maybe omit doing is saying, and here's how I came to that decision. And here's maybe some of the things that we thought about and the reason we're not doing them. And, and what I like about that is I think it gives you a little bit of a cover as a leader because your people become more confident that the things that are running through their head, the I wonder if they did this, you've now gotten out in front of and said, not only did we do this, here was the result of it. So I think stress testing it by yourself or with your leadership team, then sharing with your team what you did and why you came to the decision you came to. And then as a third thing, keeping people updated on somewhat of a regular cadence. So what we found as an organization is in the world of COVID, where we're all working much more remotely than we did previously, we're meeting for shorter bursts more frequently. Whereas previously, when we were mostly in the office, we had some people remote, but mostly in the office, we were meeting for longer stretches on a biweekly or monthly basis. Now we're meeting quicker, like 15 to 20 minutes, but we're doing it two, three, four times a week. So have the plan, tell people what you came to and why you came to it, and then update them regularly on how it's going. Have you felt that by doing those short bursts and being together like frequently, but not for longer periods of time, have you found that to be more effective with your team? Yeah. One of the decision-making frameworks that I love that I, I referenced in that last answer, and then I think I omitted actually sharing it, was, was what Amazon does. And what Amazon does is they call it their press release method. 
And it's mm-hmm. basically working backwards. So if you want to get something approved at Amazon, you have to come with what would be the finished press release of this product or of this feature. You have to think about what the client would say or what the technology press would write about it. So you have to come with the finished product and then the team has to decide if it's the path they want to go on. So mm-hmm. sometimes as a team, what I try to do is I try to say, here's the idealized state that I'm trying to get us to. Here's what I considered. Here's what we decided not to do and the reasons why. And then every two to three weeks, if we do this, or every two to three days, if it's a short sprint project, I'm going to try to give you an update on how we've gotten to where we are, where we're going, and where we're hoping to um, accomplish next. The reason why, like, I think that's a really important aspect of that. What have you found, like, when you're looking at that with some of your clients, the things that they're coming up with? I think the biggest reason why usually is a question of why not another uh, direction. And so part of what I like about the embrace a premortem step to go back to, to step two is if you force yourself to think about why things would fail, I think a lot of the times you answer a lot of the why we should go down this direction. So if you rack your brain and figure out the three reasons that you think this decision could fail, but you can then give an answer of why you're going to mitigate it, or more importantly, how you're going to mitigate one of those three things coming to fruition, I think you do a really good job of getting in front of the perceived pushback that you might get from the rest of your leadership team or from the staff that might need to implement this. So if you can anticipate the why, and a lot of that comes from the pre-mortem, a lot of the whys result from, I think this isn't the right decision because this could go down XYZ path. Well, here's ABC reason why or how we're going to get in front of that. I think that's a powerful way to lead and get in front of those that pushback. What do you say to people who, you know, they, they say, oh, you're just being negative? Mm. I, I, I like that. I actually, I don't mind being negative because I think that part of being negative is saying that you should have confidence in the positivity that I'm showing when we get to the final decision because I was negative and tried to rip holes in this grandiose plan that I think is going to save our Q3, or I think is going to put us in the position for the most incredible 2021 that you have ever seen and and you will be blown away. Well, a lot of that sometimes just feels like uh, rah-rah pep talk lip service. But if you're a little bit negative and you try to punch holes in it, I think you get a little bit more of the the leeway to, to be that, that rah-rah cheerleader champion. And that is, I think, what a lot of people want. They want you to be positive about the decision that you're going to embark on. But mm-hmm. the negativity gives you a little bit of that, that credit that you've at least thought that everything that you're thinking isn't the greatest thing and the, since sliced bread. Okay. Yeah. That's a <laughs> yeah. very great answer. Yeah. <laughs> Being negative, yeah, is not necessarily a bad thing. It's it's an, an important piece of leadership, actually. Just like you said, yeah. That's why debates are so important. Like you got to look at both sides of the situation in order to be able to make a proper and informed decision. Okay, so I have to jump in there because I love what you just said. And one of my favorite things to do is if you're in a room and let's say that you have two people who are diametrically opposed on the right path 
to go forward. What you should do is you should stop the conversation right there and you should make the people argue the opposite. So if person A thinks you should do this and person B thinks you should do something else, make person A make person B's argument and flip it and see how they put holes in their own idea. So make people play the devil's advocate for what they want to do. I think it makes it, it becomes to light then what the right decision to do is. Whoa, I bet Thanksgiving at your house is fun. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I, wow. That Talk about the ultimate leadership directional tool. It's like, nope, stop, argue the other side, and let's, let's come to an agreement here. I'm going to yeah. use that. Yeah, I haven't heard that before. That's that's really good advice for someone. Who, uh, again, I'll bring it back to you know someone who maybe doesn't have that sounding board. How would they approach that if they don't have someone else to bounce it off of? Sometimes I th- I think we get in this state of analysis paralysis where we just we we go in circles because we almost put an infinite time loop on a decision. So one of the suggestions that I sometimes make with the people that we, we coach or the organizations that we work with is you have to instill or you have to put a boundary on it. So if you need to get the Q3 plan together in three weeks, break it up into chunks and give yourself two-day deadline windows to make the six decisions that you have to make. You can use that in your personal life. You can use that in your professional life. In some ways, the the, the time clock getting closer and closer to zero, forcing you to make a decision, in many ways, it crystallizes um, your thinking. Whereas if you don't have a timeline in place, you can go in an infinite loop of, of really not figuring anything out. So put time limits on, even if there aren't time limits, or chunk it up and put time limits onto each chunk that you have to make a decision on. Yeah. Can you I, give an example of... Please. <laughs> from, your, from your own personal life of something you had where you've done that and it's yeah i i think when we do our quarterly planning the the comment i made earlier about what the heck 2021 is going to look like for us just because we've seen this massive growth in our virtual our in-person was the bulk of our business before and so as we plan for 2021 we're a little bit riding blind because we don't know when the switch might get turned And so instead of our normal plan of by the end of the year, we want to have our 2021 plan crystallized from a hiring perspective and and all of those kind of things put in place, what instead we're doing is we're kind of trying to say, okay, at this point, we want to at least know what we're looking at through March of 2021. And instead of trying to get some level of a high-level plan for the whole year put together just inevitably by the end of the year... What we want is we've already got what we think Q1 would look like, and then we already have the plan in place of when we're going to meet for Q2 and Q3. Mm -hmm. And we feel like there's another date that we're going to put out there where we can adjust Q3 depending on vaccines, depending on what people decide in terms of their preferences. And we're going to meet more frequently about what would normally have been a very large year-long planning session. We're instead going to truncate it and put different deadlines on trying to get in front of planning with the best available information that we have. That's such good advice. Oh my gosh. Guys, I hope you're taking notes. For everyone listening, you better be taking some notes here because this is like truly what Matthew is saying. It's it will change the course of your business and may, and continue to keep it healthy 
and to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward with the knowledge you have. We could talk all year long about what's going to happen at the end of Q4 or whatever, but we just don't know. And I guess that's something COVID has taught us as well as business owners is let's just slow down. Let's take one step in front of the other and let's make educated decisions based on what we have because we just don't know. And the reality is that even before COVID, we didn't know anyway. But here we are, right? Like in this in this new understanding, this new mindset of like, well, let's be more strategic. Yeah. yeah fantastic. I'm going to throw out also that for the people who maybe feel like they don't have someone to do this process with, they can also find mentors to help them see that other side. You know, one of the things that that I really was thinking about with your strategies in particular was that they, they really go against the grain of our instincts. Mm-hmm. And and in in life and in business, we're just so propelled, like, oh, we got to keep moving forward, keep moving forward. And we just go with our instincts, go with our instincts. And it, it's almost like you've developed a strategy that says, hold up, those instincts aren't always right. Like sometimes they might be, but let's let's verify your instincts kind of. Hmm. Is that right? I, yeah. And I, I also think even if you default to your instincts 70, 80, 90% of the time, going through the exercise of saying, okay, if I rewrote the script completely, what would I do? Then how would it fail? And then would I make sure that the basics were checked so that I didn't have you know, a crazy disaster on my hand? That doesn't mean that you have to go down that path, but it at least forces you to, on somewhat of a regular cadence, to say, is that normal path, is that regimented, very routine path still the right thing to do? I think one that helps you as a leader, but also if you're a leader of a team and you're able to share that decision-making process with your team, they have a little bit of confidence that us continuing to do what we've done quarter in, quarter out, or month in, month out is still the right path because we're at least having those grandiose conversations about Mm -hmm. what would it look like if we deviated completely. Hmm. Yeah. So keeping the clear communication open. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the things I wanted to to look at was actually your your TED talk. Okay, so the reason I'm bringing this up is because in, in my main business, we focus a lot with helping entrepreneurs develop their books, and a lot of that revolves around storytelling. In that, when I was listening to your TED talk, I was seeing structure that very few people actually understand and are able to implement. I want to ask you. When you were putting that TED Talk together, what were you thinking as far as structure? Because you hit so many very quality points about how you delivered your message, the stories that you chose, and how they tie into delivering each of your three steps that you talked about, and, and then how you tied it all together. Well, I, re- I appreciate the, the kind words. And the thing that you said that is the through line to that talk and, and what I try to do frequently is it's stories. I, I think stories tell the picture. So I could have very easily gotten up on the stage and said, here are my three steps, boom, boom, boom. And here's how you implement them. I tried to find a story of one step and then the story that reflects why that step is powerful. And then the next step and the story from the real world that shows why that step is, po- is powerful. And then I got through the third step, told the NASA story, which was the check the basics. And then I had a story at the end of the talk that tied all three of the steps together. And, and I think it's the thing that I've noticed from leaders that I've had the pleasure of working with or working for 
those that can weave stories into why they're doing something that they're doing, it, it paints the picture for people in a way that simply, in many ways, just telling people what to do doesn't go that level where you get buy-in. So if you can find a story from the real world, or you can talk about a story in your planning session about a company that does this, and as a result, this is the conversation that I want to have, I think you get buy-in in a way that simply just saying something doesn't get people all of the way there. So that would be my biggest piece of advice. Find stories to help you tell the, the story or explain the decision that you're making. Now, do you remember how you started that presentation? The yeah. very first line? Yeah, I, I start with a story about Stanford University and a class on entrepreneurship. And, and I think I started the talk by saying $5 and a class on entrepreneurship. And I think rather than saying, I'm going to give a talk on decision-making, my goal was to <laughs> people in with a story. Yeah, and, and I want to point out that first line, that was such a great hook because it makes you curious. Mm -hmm. yeah. Immediately. Right? Yeah. Immediately, yeah. And so what's, what's funny is, because I had your TED Talk playing, and then another one just started playing after, and I started listening to it. I'm like, oh, this guy doesn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Not to name a name. We're not naming names. No. <laughs> but it's, it was so apparent and so drastic that I was just like, yeah, you know, as I was listening, I was, I was you know, take, like taking all these mental notes about the structure and, and things like that that you were doing. But then I was like, most people miss that aspect of it. They don't realize that there is a structure to delivering presentations, to delivering stories that you can create an emotional connection with people through those stories. Something else I wanted to point out too is you didn't introduce who you were until about the three minute mark. So you were making it about the audience, about them, what they're going to learn. And I love that. And then you're very, very quickly, you were like, I'm Matthew Comfer and I, you know, I work for Ability. I'm moving on. And I, I appreciated that. <laughs> I was like, well, I want to know more about you, but like through, through your stories. And I love that you, you talked about Captain Soli. And that, that whole, like the visual of that was like, oh my gosh, just, ugh, yeah. So <laughs> you have to go watch the TED Talk. <laughs> we're yeah, we're talking about it a lot, but you really just got to go watch In so many it. ways, you know, listen for, for the content, but also pay attention to the structure, especially if you're, you're looking to do something like that. You're, you have to put together a presentation. Look at that, model it. Like it was just so like on point yeah. of how, how to do a great presentation. Yeah. The, the other side of, that I wanted to ask you about is for people who are wanting to do a TED Talk themselves, what tips and strategies could you give them to, to be able to you know, go out there and, and make that happen? Yeah, so the TEDx organization is an incredible way. There are independent TED events in many cities all around the, the world. And, and I was contacted by the organization in, in the Dallas area. And you can find these organizations online and, and reach out to them directly. The, the thing that I, I would say is I, th I think what benefited me was I had a really tangible idea of what I wanted to say, how I wanted to say it, some of the stories that I wanted to interweave because I give them, and, and thank you for all of the kind words about the talk. Part of it was probably in, in total, I had five or six conversations with some of the organizers of the specific TEDx event. I actually did full run-throughs of the presentations with them. I iterated on it, I adjusted it. And a lot of the people that I've interacted with who have given uh, TEDx talks or who organize TEDx events, 
they get a decent amount of proposals. So anything that you can do to stand out, but also show that you've put the work into if they choose you as one of the eight people who get up on stage at one of their events or who speak at one of their virtual events, you've already thought about what would make your talk resonate and what would make your talk not necessarily different, um, but stick out in a way. And, and so I can't give that organization enough kudos. I, I truly enjoyed the opportunity to work with them. And if you um, go down the rabbit hole of learning about some of the different TEDx events, some of them have different themes and connecting with on LinkedIn, some of the TEDx organizers, maybe in a city near you, yours, I think that's a great place to start. Do your research, ask questions from the people who are putting on the event because they're the ones who know what works, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they know their audience. And I mean, you could look at a lot of things in business like that, right? You know, it's like the same as asking your customers, you know, what is it that you want next from us as a business? Yeah. Because yeah. they're the ones who are driving the ship, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I've got kind of a random question for you, Matthew. If you are not in your current role, we love to ask everyone this just for fun. If you were not in your current role, what would you be doing? Would you be an astronaut? <laughs> what would you be doing? You know, when I originally went to university, I-, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I think I had these ideas of what Jack McCoy did on, on the TV show Law and Order, and that was yeah. <laughs> to be a lawyer. I quickly learned that wasn't what it meant to be a lawyer, and I'm very happy that I didn't go in in that direction. Part of what I found interesting, though, about being a lawyer was conveying an argument, arguing for it, and then trying to convince people of your your point of view. So I think that's a roundabout way of me saying I I really like storytelling. And and I think thank you for highlighting that from the, the TEDx talk. And I think a lot of what I, the people who shaped me the most were the teachers that I had. So I think I would like to have probably been a professor or a high school teacher and be able to tell stories to students and maybe help them see or learn in a more vivid way. Awesome. Wow. You're continuing to do that with the TEDx. I think it has something like 96,000 views, something like that. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an impressive TED talk. Yeah. Let's, think, let's get it over a hundred thousand. Yeah. Let's, let's do it guys. <laughs> do you, you think you'll do it? You'll do another TED talk at some point. I, you know, it has been without a doubt, the thing that has allowed me to connect with people specifically on LinkedIn and Twitter in a way that I never thought possible. Whereas people will randomly find the talk. It's, it's to your point earlier where you were watching my talk and then before you knew it, you were watching another talk. It's kind of like the Netflix algorithm or the YouTube algorithm. You just find yourself watching talk after talk. And I think I've started to become recommended next to some other talks. So people will find me and have no connection to me or our organization or not even live in America or anywhere near me. And they'll send a message on LinkedIn and say, this really resonated about the talk. So I would love to give another one at some point just because I think it's allowed me to expand my network. It's allowed me to learn what people are doing all around the world, gotten some, some coaching and some clients um, from it. And so, yes, I, I think I would be, be interested in doing it again. Yeah. And w- one of the things that you know, we talk about is credibility factors. Mm-hmm. Okay? What are the, the key things that are going to make a difference as far as the credibility you're putting out there that make your conversations with potential clients easier. And there's things like books, being an author, a best-selling author, even better. There's getting featured in the media, which really helps. And then there's things like TED Talks. We don't talk about TED Talks enough 
but it really does make a difference as far as the audience that you're able to reach and the conversations that you then have. Because I'm also sure that the, when you've been talking to people about your process, they're already predisposed to your ideas. So when you have those conversations with them about working with you guys, it's like, it's so much easier. Like, it's just like, oh, yeah, you're ready to go. Okay, let's do it. That type of thing. As you're not having to sell as much, right? I, I couldn't agree more. And I also think one of the advantages of having things like LinkedIn or, or just the internet in general is I, I find it really powerful that a lot of the times when people reach out, they'll not just reach out with a generic, I'd love to connect and learn more. They'll reach out with a tangible, you know, two bullet point list of two things that I've done or they've done that, that, reflect something that I've talked about or I've wrote about. And they've said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about it for 15 minutes. And you get so many generic messages that the ones that stick out are the ones that specifically call out something that you've done or something that they've done that might be of interest. And, and so that would be a huge suggestion that I, I would make. Anytime you're reaching out to somebody, do the five to 10 minutes of due diligence on them and try to pick something out that might make your message stand out against the hundreds of, of other messages that, that that individual might get. Well, that's exactly why we're even on this call now, right? Because you, <laughs> you reached out to me. I mean, it was very straightforward and I appreciate that. Yeah, I receive hundreds of messages. Oh, it's, it's overwhelming to go through them. And most of them are just, hey, let's connect, let's connect. But yours stood out right away in large part because you said, you know, I, I did a TED Talk. Like, okay, let me watch that. And I watched it really quick and I thought, perfect. It's going to be really valuable for our listeners. Let's get him on the show. We, we just wrapped up a book that focuses on sales, prospecting specifically. Mm -hmm. And what you said is exactly what is mentioned in that. And it's, and it's B2B prospecting to be clear, but it does kind of translate uh, across different mediums is that when you are... Uh, reaching out to someone, do your research, you know, get, you know, make, make it personal, get to know them, read a blog post of theirs. You know, if they, if they posted something on LinkedIn, read it, reference it, reference it. mention, you know, if, if you liked it or if you, oh, hopefully you didn't, you know, <laughs> you I know. hated it. Let's you talk. <laughs> know, exactly. Find, find something that you like about what they're doing and mention that. And you'll create that, that personal connection a lot easier, a lot quicker and it can open doors in ways that you may not have even thought possible. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. I have a, a friend that, that says one of the most powerful ways to, to do cold introductions is to write something to somebody and say, here are the four things that I think you could do given this problem that you highlighted in a recent blog post. Or have you ever thought about doing this, this, and this for your business? And it's almost like you're doing a little bit of the work for them of saying, here's, I've almost come up with solutions for you. You don't have to take them. But just the fact that I put that effort in, you might be more open to having that 15-minute introductory coffee or conversation. Oh, absolutely. And you've provided value. You've taken the time to provide value, and that's huge. Well, this has been so awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I've really appreciated the time as well, and, and I'll come back to what I've said. I, I really enjoy connecting with people. So if you, if you find something in the TED Talk that resonates with you, LinkedIn, Twitter, or finding us on our website at Ability is the best way to get in touch and check out our Learn to Lead podcast. And, and thank you for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks. Definitely. We have as well. All right, guys. We'll see you in the next one. Bye. All right. Bye. On the next episode, we share the truth about online marketing 
That's right. We are doing an expose on the shady underworld of online marketing, and we are exposing the so-called marketing gurus. We dive into the harsh realities of social media marketing, and we share why 95% of every person who takes an online course gets little to no results, and why the gurus know this and do nothing about it. And we expose the psychological tricks that they use to put you into a buying state so that you purchase from them even when they know you won't get any results. It's totally unethical. We're exposing their shady tactics so you don't have to fall for their lies and scams anymore. And information like this is only available on the Big Picture Business Podcast. So get those fingers of typing, leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. It really does make us smile. Can you see how big the smile is? Can you? Can you really?